Welcome to BIO, a podcast produced by the Biographers International Organization. BIO is devoted to promoting the work of biographers and advocating for biography as a genre with the support of biographers and biography lovers worldwide. I'm BIO member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. On each episode, we'll talk with a biographer about his or her work. This time, award-winning author and Brigham Young University music professor Brian Hawker talks about his new biography, Sportin' Life, John W. Bubbles, an American Classic. It was published by Oxford University Press in January of this year. Brian Hawker's previous books dealt with various aspects of jazz music, and in Sporting Life, he reintroduces readers to John Bubbles, one of the jazz world's most singular and elusive architects. Harker was interviewed by fellow biographer and bio member Eric K. Washington. Brian, hi. Hi. <laughs> Good to meet you. Tell us briefly, who was John W. Bubbles? Yeah, John Bubbles was zooming out a little bit. In my opinion, he was the most important tap dancer after Bilbo Jangles Robinson. Um, he really picked up the baton where Robinson left off in terms of technique and developed tap dance style and technique for the next generation and really for several generations after. He's kind of thought of as the Louis Armstrong of tap. Wow. And why did you feel compelled to write about him? <laughs> it was a fortuitous accident. Um, I was working on Miles Davis, actually. Ah. And I met this gal in a carpool back in 2015. And we got talking and she said, oh, do you know John Bubbles? And for a minute, I kind of blanked. And then I thought, oh, Buck and Bubbles, Sport and Life. And I, oh, yeah, yeah, sure, of course. And she says, well, my family just facilitated a donation to BYU of Bubbles' entire archive. And I said, you've got to be kidding me. <laughs> and so I immediately went to the library and checked it out. And there's 30 plus boxes of all of his stuff documents of all kinds, contracts, letters, autobiographical statements, photographs, contracts, recordings, wow. um, and so forth. And anyway, I just got immersed and I put miles aside and I just felt I can't pass this up because this was virgin territory. This yeah. had not been looked at before and I just could not resist diving that in. That's amazing. So you're in Salt Lake City and you teach at Brigham Young University. So that's BYU. Uh, BYU is in Provo. So it's, oh, it's okay. 50 miles south of Salt Lake. All right. But how did the archives end up? Why BYU? Was there just a particular connection with the donor or? Uh... Yeah, I have to go back a little bit to when uh, Bubbles died in 1986. His live-in companion, Wanda Michael, was his the executor of his estate. And he had left behind all this stuff. And so she was very loyal to him and she just packed it up lovingly in boxes. And when she moved to Tacoma, Washington, she bought all these boxes with her and kept them until she was in her nineties. And then, wow. uh, and then in her nineties, she converted to the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And that's why these boxes went to BYU after her death because BYU is sponsored by that church. Right. So that's how they got to BYU. That's incredible. Yeah. So, I mean, you note in the book that Bubbles is best remembered for three things, 
creating the role of sport in life, the character in Gershwin's Porky and Bess, his decades long vaudeville partnership with Ford Washington as Buck and Bubbles. Mm -hmm. And um, as the father of rhythm tap or jazz tap by also tapping with his heel. Actually, I should back up because since I've mentioned vaudeville with Buck and Bubbles, for the uninitiated, why don't you remind us what is vaudeville? Both in general and in particular to showbiz smitten black kid from Nashville. Right, right, right. So vaudeville was American show business before movies, basically. And, uh, you know, it was dominant in the late 19th century and then started kind of fading out in the 1920s. And basically a vaudeville show involved nine or 10 acts, typically of various kinds might have, you know, an animal act or a magician or singers and dancers, all kinds of different acts. And of course, it was all live. This was before the age of, of mass media. So when John Bubbles comes along, you know, he's this young kid, 17 years old in 1920, he goes to New York and vaudeville was the vehicle for him to pursue a career in show business. Um, as it happened, like I say, his career took off just when vaudeville was kind of starting to decline. Mm -hmm. um, and so he, he ended up spending the last 20 years of his career during a time when, for most people, vaudeville was not a viable option anymore. It was competing with movies and radio and, and musicals and all kinds of other things, but it was kind of um, running on fumes for the last 20 years of its career as an institution. And that was basically the end of Bubbles' vaudeville career as well. Wow. So incidentally, to entering vaudeville as a song and dance man, he does something particularly innovative as a dancer, adding his heel to tapping, which I guess in, in Bill Robinson's era was mostly done with the toes. And this was revolutionary. And you and tell me if I represent this right. You submit that this last contribution of tapping with his heel, this new syncopated dance rhythm, while deferred to by tap legends like Honey Coles and, and others, has not been given its due in its symbiotic relation to the evolution of instrumental jazz. Did I get that right? Yeah, I think so. Basically, what the heel supplied was a greater rhythmic variety. At least that's the way, as I understand, now, I'm not a dancer. I, I should make this clear. I am not a tap dancer. I'm a musician. So this is what I understand. Um, Bill Bojangles Robinson tapped on his toes. Bubbles kind of introduced those heel drops. And that made possible more complex rhythmic subdivisions. And my theory is that in the transition from ragtime to jazz, it was the tap dancers who were really at the cutting edge, more than the musicians. And Bubbles was the, the leading man there. He, he was the one who really developed more sophisticated and variegated and complex rhythmic patterns. That, in my opinion, also influenced the music as well. Well, so how did you set about, I mean, with this observation, how did you set about illustrating Bubbles' impact and influence in this way? Were there still living people alive? Oh, who you were able to? No, uh, unfortunately, almost no one. I mean, I, I did interview his third wife, but she was born in 1933. Hmm. Um, so after these developments had taken place, and, and when I interviewed her, she was in her 70s or 80s. So there was really no living witnesses to all this. And the, the further problem is that we don't have any recordings, sound recordings of tap dancing in the 1920s. 
that really doesn't start until the 30s. And so we're, you know, we're operating in the dark here a little bit. But in terms of circumstantial evidence, I think it's at least plausible uh, that tap dance influenced jazz rhythms in at least two possible places. One at the Sunset Cafe in 1926-27, when Louis Armstrong was there, Bubbles was there, uh, two other leading tap dance teams were there all at the same time. And at least two of those teams were known for this more complex type of rhythm tap that Bubbles had pioneered. And the interesting thing is, after that period, Louis Armstrong's rhythms open up. And so I'm arguing that that's evidence, possibly, that his time with these tap dancers was really inspiring and illuminating for his own rhythmic vocabulary. The other time, that time when I'm arguing this took place, and this, this is even, we have more evidence for this, I think, is in the 1930s when tap dancers start squaring off with drummers, jazz mm -hmm. drummers. And we have several eyewitnesses who are saying, yeah, we got all the rhythms from the dancers, you know. And then when we get to bebop, it becomes even more pronounced, I think, that the influence there because uh, bebop drummers were doing something called dropping bombs, which was playing along with the ride cymbal in the right hand and then dropping these random sporadic pops on the snare drum and the bass drum that Honey Coles and a few other people say that was from the tap dancers. That was from those heel drops. So anyway, that's kind of, in my opinion, where we can see the, the intersect. So it sounds like also, I mean, just from your description there, uh, aside from the archives that you had privy to that were at BYU, you were finding other kinds of archives in other places. Yeah, actually, a, a lot of that stuff came from the Bubbles archive, because in the years after his stroke in 1967, he didn't have much to do, really. And so he, he just became a, you know, a, a clipper. He would clip newspaper articles and clip magazine yeah. articles, and especially relating to tap. And so there's really a lot of great stuff in the archive there. Uh, the John Bubbles papers is what it's called, you know, with, with interviews with Honey Coles in particular, with Chuck Green. And then, of course, you, you also have letters coming in from those same people. Wow. What did you find the most surprising in the archives? Um, I don't know if there's any one thing in the archives. It was just this cornucopia of wonderful, wonderful stuff. I think in terms of just the overall project, the things that really kind of stunned me may have come from the, the newspaper clippings I found that supplemented the archive, particularly relating to Buck and Bubble's career. Mm -hmm. I was really amazed by how successful they were from the very beginning. They got to New York. They were complete no-names, 17 years old. And they go to the Audubon Theater, their first kind of big breakout performance there, and they stopped the show four times in a 20 minute act. And the, the critics who report these are, you know, kind of, they're agog. It's like, wow, who are these kids? And that pattern just continues over and over in the 1920s, where the critics are saying, well, this guy's the headliner, but Buck and Bubbles are the stars of the show. And I didn't realize just how successful they were with audiences right from the beginning, but all the way through until about the late 1930s, and then they started hitting hard times. But that was really fun to find. Wow. Were there aspects of Bubbles' life or career that you found particularly challenging to convey? Well, I guess the challenge with Bubbles for me was that he was not a literary person. I mean, he, he did write some letters, but most of those were from late in his career. And so we don't really have a lot 
from earlier on. And then the other thing is he was an extremely private person. And so getting into his inner life was a challenge. Trying to figure out what was on his mind was a challenge. So, I mean, I, I focused on his career, on his, his contributions. And because this is the first biography of him, basically on just what happened, you know, in terms of the events in his life. Do we have a chronology? Mm-hmm. Um, so that was kind of kind of my my aim anyway. But I would have really liked to have a better sense of his feelings, his thoughts, particularly early on, because you know he started collecting things in the '40s and then '50s, '60s, '70s, and got more and more and more and more as it got toward the end of his life. You do make some inroads into yeah. his personal life that are telling. I mean, there he emerges. Well, certainly sometimes is is not altogether sympathetic. So I guess since like 2015, or you start the project. So you're living with him yeah. <laughs> these years. And how does that affect your process? Because you approach him totally gung-ho to like, you know, for marriage, you know, yeah. I'm, you know yeah. he's going to be your subject. How did that affect the process when, um, you know, the pages start turning and you could see that he's fleshing out as a three-dimensional person and, and not always in a flattering way? Right. Well, that's a great question. And I guess I'll respond, uh, first of all, by saying that I had a good friend who gave me some advice. He says, have charity for the people you're writing about. Mm-hmm. You know, it's easy to judge. Um, and it's easy to, gosh, you know, he shouldn't have done that. Or he, you know, his character is not so great here. But I, I did try to have a sense of <laughs> compassion and charity for him as a subject. He's not around. He can't defend himself. Mm. But having said that, I guess it, it was just a matter of recognizing that as a scholar, we're working in the dark, and especially with someone like Bubbles, there's just not a lot of data. And so when one incident sticks out, I have to remember that's only part of the story. And I don't know the context. I don't know. And I'm not justifying or excusing anything. But I'm just saying that my opinion, my feeling is these people who've made such wonderful contributions in so many ways should be appreciated mostly for the good that they did. And we recognize they're human beings and they make mistakes. And Bubbles certainly did. He, his personal relationships were very rough. Are there any descendants who you were able to, to contact? I couldn't find any of his kids. Or of um, uh, Nazaro's, his agents. Oh, yeah. He's a very tough guy to, <laughs> to locate. He's a, he's a shadowy figure. I mean, he had a, an, a, an adopted son that became known as Nat Nazaro Jr. And for a while there, it was hard to tell who was who in the news clippings. Oh, this is the, this is the senior. This is the junior. And he had his own career in show business that was very successful as a performer. And then later as a, a, I think he worked for an agency or no, no, he, he, he worked for a union, I believe. But in any case, finding family members of Nat Nazar was almost impossible. I did find uh, a niece uh, of Bubbles who was actually named after him. Her name was Bubblesette. Oh, wow. and, yeah, it was really sweet. So I talked to her on the phone a couple of times, but not a lot there in terms of how much she, she knew that she could contribute to the book, but it was really wonderful and lovely talking to her. But yeah, it's um, not a lot of people that I was able to yeah. find. Although the book flows chronologically, how did you 
organize your research and writing process? Um, you didn't begin at page one. <laughs> well, actually, I did. <laughs> ah, okay. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm kind of anal retentive that way. I have to go in, in chronological sequence because I think I can't write about the 1950s if I don't know what happened in the 30s. So anyway, yeah, I, I did start at the beginning and plow through it. I kind of got a sense of organization early on, like, okay, this is his pre-New York years. This is, you know, the, the 20s or point of time of real innovation and so forth. And so I mapped that out. But then I, I started from the beginning and you asked about challenges. I, one of the probably the biggest challenge I faced was dealing with the first couple of chapters because then I got to, I got to deal with his parents. I've got to deal with, mm. can I connect him back as far as civil, the civil war and his grandparents. And that was very challenging to find the information and then to be able to put it together in a way that made sense. That was by far my biggest difficulty because when you're dealing with African-Americans in the 19th century who have slave ancestry, before the Civil War, we had, you know, we just have, you know, there's this white landowner, AC Sublet, and he had 20 slaves. Mm -hmm. And then the first census after the Civil War, 1870, all of a sudden, there are these other people in Las Casas where he lived, Black people who have his same name. And when you've got sublet, that's a little easier than if you got someone named Smith or Jones, right? Not too many sublets. So if you've got Black citizens living in, in the same area as this white landowner, chances are they were once his slaves. And then you can kind of go from there and then following the censuses. But I really struggled to sort a lot of that stuff out. And as far as finding family history, I had to look multiple, multiple, multiple times and in multiple ways, sometimes even to just find the people, his grandparents uh, on both sides, I was not able to find until maybe the 10th time <laughs> searching in different ways under different names um, because of people who lived with them and so forth. So anyway, that, that was a massive challenge, but also very rewarding. And his own, I understand that he started his own it was ghostwriter autobiography. Was that useful in your process? And just in terms of corroborating, you know, what he said with um, other accounts. Yeah, yeah. It was very helpful, not in terms of laying out a timeline so much, but there's a lot of first person accounts by Bubbles himself, right? Mm -hmm. And so that was gold. And also the guy who, who wrote that, Jerry Maguire, he interviewed some of Bubbles' employers. So, you know, he interviewed Johnny Carson, he interviewed Judy Garland, he interviewed all these different people who had worked with Bubbles. And so there's some great quotes there as well. But it was mostly, it was mostly the quotes that were helpful there. And also some description of certain incidents. But the chronology I had to sort out mostly on my own much of the time. The other great source there was the Jazz Oral History Project from the Institute of Jazz Studies. I got Bubbles' interview from that. And uh, that was really helpful as well. In terms of his legacy, wh where do you feel Bubbles' influence is present, but maybe overlooked in today's entertainment culture? <laughs> That's a great question. So there's a, a Broadway performer named Andre de Shields, who is very active Emmy Award winning performer. And he's an example of someone who pointed directly to Bubbles. He was my inspiration. 
And then, of course, we know Michael Jackson was a big fan. He named his pet chimp after Bubbles. I'm not sure that's a compliment, but according to things that I've read, at least, although this is a little bit off the grid in terms of sourcing, but what I, things that I've heard are that he was a big admirer of Bubbles and Bubbles dancing. But as far as just more generally, I think that his influence has been really absorbed and subsumed so much. It's almost invisible um, because Fred Astaire was hugely influenced by Bubbles. And so <laughs> presumably uh, everything you see Fred Astaire doing has you know, a little bit of a Bubbles stamp on. I loved how you started with that anecdote about Fred Astaire taking dance lesson from, from Bubbles. Right. Which I guess wasn't ever really explicitly acknowledged. No, but, but I think, but I think very believable. I, th yeah. I think, I think it happened. And uh, and Eleanor Powell, another one who clearly strongly influenced by Bubbles. So anytime we sit down and see these old Hollywood musicals with a lot of tap dancing by the greats, I think we're seeing Bubbles' legacy. You know, are there other ways that you'd like to see his legacy sustained? Things that you think the industry ought to be doing to acknowledge? Yeah. Well. <laughs> Part of it is just a lost world, you know? I mean, he's a song and dance man. Mm. And occasionally we see some of modern entertainers doing that kind of thing on Broadway and so forth. But certainly it's the, the song and dance man is not the model anymore for the young up, up and coming entertainer. And I think he represented that standard and that model maybe better than anybody because, you know, you look at Fred Astaire he was a fantastic dancer, not a great singer, right? Frank Sinatra, killer singer, but not a great dancer. But Bubbles, he was a, an amazing, legendary dancer, and he was also a really good singer. He wasn't as important as a singer, but he was a great singer. He couldn't have pulled off Porgy and Bess if he wasn't convincing as a singer. And so he, he was kind of the total package, you know? And of course, he was, he was a, a comedian. It's interesting when you read about Buck and Bubbles, the stories about Buck and Bubbles, most of the time, the critics are enthusiastic, not about the dancing or the piano playing, but about their comedy. Mm -hmm. They are just talking about how hilarious they were. And it's really hard from this vantage point to appreciate that because there's so little that's documented about it. You know, We have one film clip of a tiny bit of their, their banter but very little. And so I guess what I'm saying, trying to say is Bubbles was the triple threat. He was the, he was the singer, the dancer, the comedian, and he did it all well. And, and so again, he represents this kind of old, old model, this old uh, template for American entertainment. And a lot of that has been lost, I think. Mm. So having done this, what is your advice to first-time biographers who have the good fortune to latch onto an archive or just a, a subject that they feel compelled to write about? Yeah. Uh, well, for me, research is most meaningful when it's personal, you know, when it matters to me, when I'm trying to answer my questions. And that's the thing. Hmm. When I wrote this book, I was trying to write the book I wanted to read. I was thinking about what do I want to know about this guy? What is really interesting to me about this guy? And, and that's what I wrote about. And so use the sources to answer your own questions is, is, is my advice. That's great advice. Thank you, Brian. 
Oh, thank you. I'm going to throw one last question uh, okay. at you, actually. Um, casting a biopic, who should play Bubbles? <laughs> <laughs> wow. And I can't dance, so I'm, <laughs> I'm trying to think. That would be a tough one. It would have to be a tap dancer. Uh, I was going to say Savian Glover, but I'm drawing a blank. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> This has been great. Thank you so much and good luck. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you so much. An honor to uh, be able to talk with you and to talk about John Bubbles. That was author and music professor Brian Hawker speaking with fellow biographer and bio member Eric K. Washington about his book, Sportin' Life, John W. Bubbles, an American Classic, published by Oxford University Press in January 2022. This interview was recorded online via Zoom on April 20th of this year. To learn more about bio or to hear other episodes in our podcast series, please visit our website, biographersinternational.org. I'm bio member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. Alani Hodge created our theme music And until next time, thanks so much for listening and have a fantastic day.